Amen. Well, at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss the children to go with Mario for Kids Church. <clears throat> If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. We are coming into the last few chapters of the book of Matthew. It is my sincere goal to finish the book of Matthew by Easter. Uh, we will, if, if my calculations are correct... Uh, we will finish the book of Matthew right around Easter. Uh, so, you know, the book of Matthew concludes with Jesus' great commission. Uh, I think it's no better, better place to land on Easter Sunday uh, than talking about the great commission that God has given us because of the resurrection uh, of Christ. We are given this call and this commission to bring uh, the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Uh, so, but... Uh, this will be a uh, about a three-year journey uh, on the other side of Easter that we've been walking through the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. Verses 1 through 13. Chris, I'm a little loud up here. I don't know if I'm loud out there. Uh, my wife says you're always loud. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And it came about... Then when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival, lest a riot occur amongst the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money be given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said this to them, Why do you bother the good woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage, Lord, may we see that oftentimes that which is expected is not what occurs. Lord, but you, in your great grace and in your great sovereignty, Lord, that you do that which is not expected. Lord, in our lives, we have certain expectations. And when things don't go as planned, we don't always respond in kind. So, Lord, we pray that today that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, would minister to us, that we would see Jesus, 
we would see His goodness and His grace. And that we would leave this place knowing that we have met with the God of the universe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Passover, the Passover is a 24-hour period. It commemorates the, the exodus of the Jewish people, the exodus of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. It commemorates the moment whenever, whenever God sent the tenth plague in Egypt and whenever God caused an angel of death to come and smite all of the firstborn in all of Egypt and that he commanded the Israelites to take the blood of the lamb, that they were to slaughter a lamb, and they were to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death would come, that the angel would pass over all of those homes where the blood was put over the door. And so that's why the, that's why the celebration is called Passover, that God provided deliverance, God provided safety, God provided a way of escape, from the imminent death for those whom, who were under and who were, whom were covered by the Lamb, and so by the blood of the Lamb. And so we see this, this celebration every year from the moment of the Exodus till today. Even today, the Israelites and the Jewish people celebrate this Passover. Now, I want us to understand that Passover was a 24-hour period, and it happened from sundown uh, on the day of Passover till, su uh, till sundown on the next day. It was a 24-hour period. Now, much like many of the festivals and many of the celebrations today, even though it's a 24-hour period, the celebration happens for a long period of time. Uh, for any of you who know my wife, know that we have been Christmasing from the beginning of November uh, all the way until today. In fact, yesterday I wasn't at home. My wife sat at home and watched Christmas movies all day yesterday. Uh, uh, and so I want to point out that my wife Christmases for a long time. You say, but Christmas is only on December 24th, and, and, and even if you're December 25th, and even if you're being generous, you know, you can say, well, Christmas Eve and Christmas, those are two days. But in our house, we Christmas from November all the way through the new year into January, and uh, sometimes you may visit my house and you may see Christmas decorations up on into Mardi Gras and some even later. Uh, there was a, a one year in particular where we had Christmas decorations up uh, all the way through Labor Day, uh, but that's a discussion for another day. But I say all that to say that that celebration around Passover was an exciting time for the people of Israel. The historian Josephus tells us that in and around the celebration of Passover, that it would be easy, it would be easy to see as many as a million to two million people, pilgrims who had traveled all from all over Asia Minor, pilgrims who had traveled from all over North Africa, from all over Europe, traveling to Jerusalem and staying in and around Jerusalem during the week and the weeks surrounding Passover. This was an exciting time for the people of Israel. There was a buzz about the city. It was Passover. It was the greatest celebration in all of the history of Israel was, was this celebration of Passover. It was commemorated and, and the, the, the Day of Atonement would be connected with Yom Kippur and the celebration of, of the Day of Atonement would be connected with this feast of the Passover. Because for Israel, this was their Christmas. This was their, their, their biggest celebration of, of, 
of their entire history was Passover. And so I want you to understand the context surrounding this. Because if we look at the text, it says that when Jesus had finished all these, all these teachings, after Jesus had got done teaching, he tells his disciples, he said, the Passover is coming. We need to get prepared for the feast. And so we see this, this idea that Jesus is aware of the Passover. He's aware of the buzz in the city, and he's aware of everything that's going down. We also see, we also see that Caiaphas, the high priest, and the elders are also aware of the festivals. I want us to look at verse 4. It says, And they had plotted together to kill Jesus, to seize him, and to kill him by stealth. In verse 5, it's saying, But they were saying, Not during the festival. What festival? The festival of Passover. Not during the festival, lest a riot occur. Why were they afraid of a riot? Because Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt. Egypt was the captivator. It, he, Egypt was the nation that, that had enslaved the nation of Israel. In present day, in, in the present day uh, circumstance of the New Testament audience, who was that Egyptian counterpart? It was Rome. Rome was that nation that had held Israel captive. Rome was the nation that had enslaved, that had enslaved Israel. And so every year during the Passover, the Israelites are celebrating God's deliverance from its oppressor, God's deliverance from its captivator. And for the Israelite people, that deliverance was from, in their day and in their circumstance, in their situation, not from Egypt, but from Rome. There was a messianic expectancy every year at Passover. Was this, would this be the year that God would provide the Messiah that he had promised? Would this be the year that God would send the Messiah and he would do it to deliver Israel from their captor? He would do it to deliver Israel from their oppressor, from Rome. And so there was this messianic expectancy, especially around Passover. However... However, the Jews, the Israelites, they wanted Jesus. They wanted a Messiah on their terms. They wanted a Messiah as they expected. They wanted a Messiah like a Moses, like a Joshua. They wanted a Messiah like Judas Maccabees who would overthrow the Roman government. They wanted a Messiah who would be a military leader, who would be a political leader. They were expecting a Messiah to come and to deliver them, to throw off the chains of Rome. They wanted, an Israel, they wanted a Hebrew leader, they wanted a Jewish leader to come in and do something that had already been done, that they had seen how it had been done. They saw how Moses did it. They saw how Joshua did it. They saw how the judges had done it. They saw what God had done, and they said, we want that again. They expected certain things from God. It's a good thing that we don't expect things from God on our terms, right? How many times have we prayed and we know exactly how we want God to answer our prayers? God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make next month's mortgage payment. You know, if you could really give me a promotion, that would be great. And, and, and we have these certain expectations. We pray expecting God to answer our prayer 
with, with certain parameters that we've placed upon God. God, I want you to move in my life. I want you to, I will be obedient. I will do whatever you call me to do so long as it doesn't cause me to move, so long as it doesn't cause me to change jobs, so long as it doesn't make my life really uncomfortable, so long as this, 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 and this. We pray, and we ask God to heal. We ask God to deliver. We ask God to, to provide, but then we give him parameters in which he should heal and the parameters in which he should provide and the parameters in which he should deliver. God, I want you to deliver me from, from this circumstance in my life, but I want you to do it my way. That's where Israel was. They wanted deliverance from Rome, but they wanted deliverance their way. God, I want you to heal, but I want you to heal my way. Oftentimes, God moves in such a way that we're not expecting. And my question is, is will you recognize God's providence when you see it? You know, James chapter 3 tells us, James chapter 3 tells us that there is a wisdom that comes from above. That the wisdom of God is not consistent with the wisdom of man. If you look at James chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, he says this. He says, this wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly wisdom, natural and demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Listen to verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. What this tells us is that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from God, and there's the wisdom that comes from this world. And sometimes those two types of wisdoms don't play well together. Sometimes they are contradictory to one another. Sometimes logical, rational thinking is inconsistent with God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us this. It says, the preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and salvation to all who believe. It is not logical, it is not rational to, to trust and to give your life for, for something or someone that you cannot see, that you, have not, that, 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 that you have no experiential knowledge. It doesn't make any sense to give your life and to serve a God whom you've never seen. That's illogical, that's irrational. Wisdom that comes from above is not always logical. It's not always rational. In Matthew chapter 26, the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting a Messiah much differently, a much different Messiah than the one that showed up. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 9 reinforces this thought that God does not act in the same way that we are. God does not act, and God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. Look at what it says in Isaiah. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. Thank God they're not. Amen? Thank God that he is not, that he is not like me that he's not vindictive, 
that he's not selfish, that he's not self-centered. Thank God that he is gracious and slow to anger and patient and kind and benevolent. Thank God that his ways are not like my ways. But this tells us that God is often going to respond and God is often going to act and intercede in our lives in a way that we would not expect him to. Let's go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. I want us to see the company of Jesus here. So this chapter begins telling us that that things are not going to happen as we expect them to. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, first of all, I want us to understand that Jesus was not somewhere that he should have been. First of all, it would have been, it would have been against Jewish law, Jewish customary law, for Jesus to associate with a leper. They were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Jesus is about to, to enter into the time of Passover. They're about to enter into the festival of Passover where Jesus is going, Jesus and his disciples are going to be offering sacrifices. They're going to be participating in the Passover meal and they would have to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And in order for them to be ceremonially clean, they would not, they would have to have at least 24 hours where they had not had any contact with anyone or anything that was unclean. A leper was considered unclean. Jesus had no business being there at the home of a leper. However, a leper would have not had a home. A leper would have lived in a leper colony. So what does this tell us? It tells us two things. It tells us that this leper was probably a former leper who had been healed by the powerful hand of Christ. His life had been changed, had been transformed. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Beth, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, there was a woman that came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. This coincides with the, uh, with the story that we see in some of the other Gospels where Mary and Martha were there with their brother Lazarus. Mary was worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Martha was in the kitchen preparing a meal for them. And Lazarus was there with them. So, so I want you to, to, to get this setting in your, in your mind's eye. Here's Jesus sitting in the home of a former leper whom he had healed, probably sitting around the table with them, sitting around the, the den or the common area with them, was Lazarus, whom Jesus had just called up from the grave, sitting there with Jesus and this former leper and this former dead man is Mary, the sister, who watched Jesus call this man up from the grave, along with all the disciples who had seen Jesus walk on water, who had seen Jesus feed the thousands, who had seen Jesus calm the storm, who had seen Jesus heal the sick, heal the lame, who had seen Jesus cast out demons. So this is the... This is the setting here in the home of Simon the leper. And they're in Bethany, just a couple days away from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And I imagine there is a heaviness in the air. Because Jesus has just spent the last couple of chapters in Matthew talking about that which is coming. Talking about his arrest, his betrayal, his crucifixion. 
and they know that the Passover feast is coming. There is a, there is a heaviness in the air. And Mary, this woman, takes a jar of perfume, possibly myrrh, and doesn't take the top off of the perfume and anoint Jesus. But the scripture tells us that she breaks the jar of perfume and anoints the head of Jesus. John's Gospel in John chapter 12 tells us, John chapter 12 verse 5, tells us the value of this perfume. Jesus is anointed and Judas pipes up and says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A denarii is approximately one day's wage. This perfume cost an entire year's salary. This is a $70,000 bottle of perfume. I just bought my wife perfume for Christmas. I didn't spend $70,000 on it. For this little minuscule bottle, you get you know, two ounces, four ounces of perfume, you pay a hundred bucks. This was, this was a, a jar, this was a vase, this was a huge amount of perfume. And it cost, by today's standard, it cost somewhere between sixty and $80,000. And Mary takes this jar of perfume and smashes it and anoints the head of Jesus. By all logic, this was stupid. What had Jesus just got done saying in the book of Matthew chapter 25? He had just got done telling all of his hearers, all of his audience, that, that your responsibility is to care for the weak, to care for the needy, to, to give to the poor, to feed the hungry, to, to clothe the naked, to heal the, the, those who are afflicted, to visit those who are in prison. He tells them in Matthew chapter 25, that whatever you do to the least of these, you've done unto me. And they say, the, the righteous, the hypocrites say, well, when did we not feed the poor? When did we not feed the sick? When did we, or, or heal the sick? When did we not clothe the naked? And Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done unto me. He's just told them that one of the primary responsibilities for Christianity, for those who are following Jesus, is to care for those who can't care for themselves. And this woman takes $80,000 and shatters it, and pours it over the head of Jesus, and the disciples, they begin, they begin to, to, to fuss at her. They begin to rebuke her, and they begin to say, why did you not sell this? What, what good could we have done? What benevolence we could have done? What ministry we could have done with $80,000? Again, we see the unexpected. We see... Verse 10 through 12, Jesus tells them, he says, why do you bother this woman? She has done a good deed. For the poor you have with you always, 
but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did so to prepare me for burial. Jesus is keenly aware of what he is about to walk through. And what this act, what Mary's act of shattering this this jar and anointing the head of Jesus demonstrated was pure, unadulterated devotion to Jesus. She was absolutely 100% consumed with her love, affection, adoration of Jesus. And nothing else mattered. Do you remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus trying to trap him, what is the greatest commandment? What was Jesus' statement? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Mary was doing. She said, it doesn't matter how much this costs. It doesn't matter the sacrifice that this is. It doesn't matter how much it's going to cost me to replace this. What I want to show, and what I want to demonstrate is pure, absolute, unadulterated adoration, love, and worship for you. God's desire for us, church, is not that we do good. God's desire for us is not that we be good. God's desire for us is not that we live by a set of rules. God's desire for us is that we love Him and love Him more than we love anything else in this entire world. Whenever Jesus was talking about, if you love me, you must hate everyone else around you, Jesus is saying, not that I want you to hate everyone, but in comparison that your love for me should be so supreme and so unbelievably far and away above your love for everyone and everything else that by comparison, it's hatred. Mary got that. She loved Jesus more than anything else. And at the time, the disciples, everyone else in that room thought they did too. God's ultimate desire is for his people to love him supremely. Well, you know, church, I want us to understand this. That looks different. It doesn't always look like shattering an $80,000 bottle of perfume and pouring it on the head of Jesus. That looks differently. When Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come at the end of Jesus' crucifixion and they take his body and they anoint it for burial and Josephus gives him his burial plot. That's what it looks like for Joseph of Arimathea. Whenever Paul forsakes his life as a Pharisee and travels from city to city to city to city, preaching in the synagogues, planting churches, that's what an unadulterated love looks like for Paul. When a housewife spends every waking moment praying for her children, loving her children, loving her husband, training them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, serving her family, making sure that, that, that they are taught the word of God, making sure that, that her husband 
feels loved and supported and encouraged and is on her knees every morning and every night praying for him and praying for their family and worshiping the Lord. That's what it looks like for that housewife. For that father who forsakes his own hobbies and his own interests so that he can serve the body of Christ, so that he can serve his family, so that he can be the husband that God has called him to be, so that he can be the, the spiritual head of the home that God has called him to be. That's what it looks like for that dad, for that father, for that husband. Loving God supremely looks different for every one of us. But God calls us to love him above everything else. And that's what he is praising here. Not the monetary gift, not, the, not the, the actual value of the oil. What he is honoring and what he is lauding and what he is praising is the sacrificial gift of this woman. Her praise, her offering. She is giving everything that she has to Jesus. It looks different, yet it looks the same. Go with, me, go with me, if you will, to the book of Mark, chapter 8. Verse 34 and 35. He tells his disciples this. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's shall save it. It looks different for everybody, but it looks the same for everybody. God's desire for us is that we love him supremely. That we give of ourselves, that we give of our resources, that we give of, of everything that we are, even to the point of sacrifice. Sacrifice of time, sacrifice of resource, sacrifice of, of, of our wants and our desires so that God may be honored, so that we can communicate our love and our adoration for Him. Jesus did not need $80,000 worth of perfume. He is the creator of the universe. He spoke the worlds into existence. Jesus all, it says in John chapter 1, verse 3, that all things were made by Him. Nothing that was made was made apart from Him. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That He is before all things. The scripture tells us that Jesus was the means of creation. This is, Jesus spoke, Jesus is the, the mechanism that God used to create. Jesus is in need of nothing. Hear that church? Jesus doesn't need you and I's worship. He doesn't need you and I's check so that He can, so that he can make ends meet. So that, so that somehow the gospel can, can, can make it to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to make it to the ends of the earth because God said it's going to make it to the ends of the earth. It is whether or not you and I get to participate in the methodology and in the mechanism of the Great Commission. God doesn't need us. Jesus didn't need to be anointed. But when he was, he said this is true worship. Because this woman didn't care what she lost. Because she realized the treasure that she had. You remember the parable of the, 
of the greatest, the pearl of great price and the, the treasure in the field. Man stumbles upon a treasure. He realizes its value. He sells everything he has to buy that field because he realizes the value of the treasure. This woman realized the value of the treasure. That Jesus, the God of the universe, she had just watched him call her brother from the grave. She knew that this was Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And she said, it doesn't matter what I have to give, what I have to sacrifice. I want to show my adoration, my, my, my worship. I want to show him that I love him. When you realize the treasure that Jesus is, you'll give up everything. You'll follow him. You'll serve him. Even if it means I give up my family. Even if it means I give up my occupation. Even if it means I give up my 401k. Is Jesus your treasure? He may not be what you expected. He's not going to make your life better. In fact, the scripture says anyone who desires to come after Christ, anyone who desires to live godly, will be persecuted. He's not going to make your, your time on earth more enjoyable. The scripture tells us that, that persecution and trial and afflictions wait those who follow Christ. But when you realize the value of the treasure, nothing else matters. God, we believe that you are our treasure, that you are more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, there are those here this morning who are here because it's Sunday and because they're supposed to go to church. They don't know the value of the treasure. But by your great grace and by your great mercy, you have peeled back the scales from their eyes that they may see clearly that you are more valuable, that you are worth more than all the gold and all the earth. If that's you this morning, if for the very first time you realize the value of Jesus, that Him and Him alone, that Christ and Christ alone can transform your life, that Christ and Christ alone can guarantee you eternity in heaven, that Christ and Christ alone is worth following. In just a few moments as we sing a hymn of invitation, I'll invite you to come. Maybe this morning God has spoken to your heart. And He said, you haven't loved me supremely. You haven't sacrificed. You haven't given anything in order to follow me. God is calling you this morning to throw caution to the wind, to serve Him with all of your heart. Maybe this morning God is calling you to trust Him To trust Him to move in your life, even in a way that you don't expect. 
God, we pray this morning that you would be our treasure, that we would leave this place desiring, loving, serving you more than we love and serve anyone or anything else. Oh God, may you be our treasure. May we worship you above all else. We ask this in Jesus' name.